Well, good evening. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. Just make your way in. It's pretty casual. Get some coffee if you'd like and just make yourself comfortable. We're glad you're here continuing our study of the book of Acts. I, uh, enough of you have asked, so I'll just tell you. You're looking at my face. You're going, man, it seems kind of blurry there. What, what's the deal? And I just wanted to let you know that I said to my wife, I said, what do you think would make me look more handsome? She said, just cover up as much of your face as you can. I'm kidding. We're, we're going, taking a group to Israel in three weeks, and I'll just tell you, it, it's a lot easier to go with a beard, so this is a short term. I mean, if things go wrong, I might need to look like a Palestinian or something. I mean, I want to fit in. Just kidding. So I'm glad you're here tonight. I'm great, grateful that you could join us for this study. It's a fascinating study, and I'm anxious to get to our chapters we're going to look at tonight. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity we have to live in the country in which we live. We have the freedom to gather and study your word and the freedom to go speak it and go to be your hands and feet in this world. I pray that as we study your word, you would use it to shape us, that your Holy Spirit would use this word to transform us, challenge us, educate us, and Father, make it so that when we leave here, we're a little different than when we came in. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know the number for questions. Text those in during class. I know that at least one of our stories should generate some questions. Uh, we are studying the book of Acts. Let me tell you where we are. And then I want to do it a little differently. We're going to be in chapters 4 and 5 in this lesson. I want to just tell you what happens in chapter 4 and 5. Then I want to go focus on two, two events in these chapters. Up to this point... Peter has figured largely in our story. If you remember, get the chronology right. We have the Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified and raised. Fifty days later is the Jewish festival of Shavuot or Pentecost. And so our, the book of Acts basically opens 50 days later at Pentecost. And we saw how the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to perform miracles and transmit a message. They spoke in tongues, and they used that as a way to, to talk to people about this resurrected Christ. The next, in our last lesson, we talked about how Peter and John were on their way to the temple. They come across a crippled man, and he looks to them for some money. He's a beggar. And they say that great line, Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, get up and walk. He picks him up, and he literally is physically healed. A man who's been over more than 40 years old, was lame since he was born, and he begins to jump and yell and praise God, and as they moved on into the temple, he went with them. That's what's happening as chapter 4 opens. As is typical, after this miracle, people gather around going, oh my goodness, what happened? This is unbelievable. And Peter says, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. The, the power that made this happen is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's raised from the dead, and he begins to teach. Chapter 4 opens. While he's teaching, the Sadducees and the temple police come up to see what is going on. They see these guys teaching, and they say, we don't like any part of this. And so they arrest them, put them in jail overnight, bring them to the Jewish authorities the next morning. The Jewish authorities basically say, look, you're not making us look good, and this resurrection thing is, we don't want to hear anymore. I mean, they just crucified Jesus two months before. And so they said, we're warning you, don't speak anymore. Disciples leave, go out, what do you think they do? They keep preaching. And so they continue to preach. The scripture there at the end of chapter 4 says, and they continue to do miracles, and in fact, the church continued to grow. At that point, they said about 5,000 men. So remember, day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed. Now, shortly after, 5,000 men means well over 10,000 people. I mean, this is really growing. And so they're becoming a little alarmed. It says the church was of one heart and one mind. And they began to talk about how they would sell possessions as needed to take care of people. Then there's a curious story. It talks about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira in the early church who sell the field and come and put part of the money before the apostles, have an interaction with this deceit, and they die. And the whole church was 
full of fear and awe at what had happened, and it says, and it grew even more than it did before. Well, the disciples continue to do these miracles, and people are being healed, and they go, this is the Jewish leaders say, this is completely out of hand, so they arrest them again, put them in jail overnight. Angel of the Lord comes, lets them out of jail, and says, go on back and keep preaching. Come the next morning, and they go, where are these guys? I guess they ran away. No, they didn't. They're right over there preaching. So they get them, bring them in in front of the Jewish leaders, and this time the Jewish leaders decide, we probably ought to kill them except for one lone voice of one teacher who changes their mind so they beat them and set them free. That's what happens in chapter 4 and 5. And there are two really uh, important things to talk about here. One is, in chapter 4, you begin to see persecution. You begin to see the church is growing and the Jewish authorities realize this is not a good thing, we need to stop it. So I'd like to follow that thread, and we'll open the scriptures and look in 4 and 5. I want to talk about what's happening with persecution from outside the church and what lessons we learn from that. Then secondly, after that, I want to talk about a threat from inside the church. I want to talk about this story of Ananias and Sapphira, one of the most difficult stories in the Bible. You have to ask yourself, why is this in the Bible? Why didn't you just leave that out? But we're going to tackle it head on and say, what is that story telling us, as unpleasant as it may seem? So those are the two things we're going to talk about, persecution from outside and some kind of threat from inside the church. So we'll begin at chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, as Peter and John, remember the scene, the man who's been healed is jumping up and down, praising God, tons of people have come, and Peter and James or Peter and John and the rest of the apostles are teaching and talking and telling, testifying to these people. So the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, because they weren't certified to do that. Uh, and secondly, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. I'll tell you about that in a second. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000 believers. It's just the way they counted. You'll see that in the Gospels, too. I'll tell you how many men were there, and then multiply that by, whatever, 2.4, whatever you think the average family size was. But there were at least 10,000 believers at this time. So that's a huge movement. I mean, think of Jerusalem, you know, that's, that's a high percentage of a, of a city in that time. 10,000 people is a, is a significant movement. Well, first, who are these Jewish authorities? I want to talk to you about who the Sadducees are, and you're going to meet the Pharisees in a few minutes. We know a little bit about them from the Gospels, from the Bible. We know more about them from the Jewish historian, Josephus, who lived in the first century. So he lived very shortly after this time and was living during much of what you're going to read in the book of Acts. He wrote as a Jew about the Jews, and he wrote about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There are other sects of the Jews, but for our purpose, we're going to meet the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were, and both of these groups, by the way, were formed about 167 B.C., so about 167 years before. The Romans weren't there then. There were Greek rulers in Israel at that time, and they were trying to stamp out the Jewish religion. This is the time of the Maccabees. So in your Catholic Bibles, you can read the first couple of books of Maccabees. It's a history of this event. So about 167 B.C., they're, they're literally making it against the law to, to, to circumcise your children, to worship, to own a Bible, and they are a death penalty. And so there's an uprising. A couple of priests say, we're not doing this, and they began an uprising. The Sadducees came out of that group. They were the party of the priests that began to oppose this. The Pharisees also came out of that time period. They were called the Hasidim. So if you think about Hasidic Jews today, same idea. Hasidim means the pious ones, the devout ones. They also joined in. They weren't priests but they were Jews who were very devout. 
they would not worship anything but God. They would die before they would worship uh, this Greek ruler who wanted to be worshipped. So they have an uprising, and they actually defeat the Greeks. And so for about 100 years, say roughly 164 B.C. to 63 B.C., we're a little before our time right now, the Jewish people had a little mini golden age. They ruled themselves. And the Sadducees were those ruling party. They were the chief priests, and they became entrenched as the ruling, powerful, uh, politically connected, fairly wealthy party. The Pharisees, the Hasidim, they became more and more devout in their uh, attention to the law. So that's where the two parties came from. At this time, in Acts, the Sadducees ruled the Jew, they were the rulers. They were the ones who controlled the temple and the priests. They were wealthier. The Pharisees were very respected by the people in many ways because they were so devout. The Pharisees were the great teachers of the Jewish people. Sadducees, basically the rulers of the Jewish people. They had some differences in how they saw things. For example, Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. In other words, the Torah. They did not necessarily accept as inspired all the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't accept any of the oral tradition, the oral law that the Pharisees so loved. They didn't accept that at all. Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They thought that when you died, your soul died with your body. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead or really an afterlife. Pharisees, on the other hand, did believe in a resurrection and that there would be a judgment of the good and the evil. They believed in the oral law and all the prophets, and they were more devout. So religiously, they were different. But together, they came together to make up the ruling council of the Jews. So that's who these people are, the Sadducees. Now you can see why they have an issue with this. On the one hand, they're like, who's teaching in the temple? What school did you go to, and where's your diploma from? I mean, are you really authorized to do this? And then secondly, you're over here teaching about the resurrection of the dead. We don't even believe in that. And secondly, this Jesus guy that we just crucified two months ago, we definitely don't want to hear about this guy being raised from the dead. So they arrest them, and they bring them in before the Sanhedrin. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and teachers of the law, this would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, and here's their question, by what authority or what power did you do this? Because they're worried about it. This guy apparently got healed, and they're like, we didn't authorize this. By what power did you do this? Well, you probably recognize these names. Caiaphas was actually the high priest. Annas was his father-in-law. Annas had been high priest for about 10 years. Romans kicked him out. He had five sons and one son-in-law, and they were all high priests at one time or another. In other words, this was a family deal. They had really consolidated their power. That's why, by the way, in the Gospels, you'll see Jesus is taken to Annas, even though Caiaphas is the high priest. Dad was kind of making sure he's still pulling the strings and controlling things. So that's, uh, they're the head of this uh, group. This group... This ruling council is called the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin. This was a group of 71 of elders, Sadducees, Pharisees, teachers of the law, that basically were, think of them as a combination of Congress and the Supreme Court. They would rule on all matters of, of law. And the way the Romans ran things, other than capital punishment, you can just mete out whatever punishments you want. You do your little religious thing and have your religious laws. Long as you keep paying your taxes, the Romans were happy. So this is the official uh, ruling body of the Jews. And so they bring them before the group and they say, by what authority are you doing this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, think about this, you're addressing the Supreme Court. These people can do whatever they want to do to you. He says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then I will tell you. Well, that kind of makes him look bad. He's, he's pretty clever, isn't he, for a fisherman. Kind of turns us around and says, let me, let me make sure I understand this. I'm here because of an act of kindness to a cripple. Okay, let's talk about that. So then he goes on and he says, I want you to know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus, the Messiah, 
That's a loaded thing. Christ means Messiah. Christ is a Greek word, Messiah is Hebrew. What he said to them is Jesus, the Messiah. They're like, whoa, we don't accept him as the Messiah. He goes, well, you better get used to it. He says, Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. You do not want to take lessons in Peter for how to get along with people, you know? He said, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. That's how this man got healed. He said, in fact, I'll even say this, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So that's Peter. Well, needless to say, they don't like this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were, they were not trained, they were ordinary fishermen, and they're saying this and they're doing these things. When they saw that, they were astonished. And they realized, they took note that these are the guys who were with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there, there's not a lot you can say. So they ordered them to go outside while the Sanhedrin conferred. They said, what are we going to do with these men? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We can't deny that. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they called them back in again, commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. By the way, this is pretty normal because in Jewish law, you, you couldn't be punished unless you understood the, uh, the consequences of your actions. So what they're doing here is they're putting on notice and they're saying, we're warning you and we're telling you, shut up. And then after that, it's on your own head. So they warn them not to speak anymore. Well, you and I would go, sure, and we'd walk out. But Peter and John reply, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them a little more, they let them go because they couldn't decide how to punish him because all the people were praising God for what had happened. After all, the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Nobody could argue about this. This is clearly a miracle. So they, uh, they basically, basically say, we're going to serve God. We're going to keep speaking. You just need to do what you're going to do because we're not going to stop. And sure enough, that's what they do. They go back out. They continue to speak. They continue to, to preach. And it gets to the point where they're doing so many miracles and so many people are coming that it inflames them. And so moving on to chapter 5, let's pick back up with the second arrest. The high priest and all his associates, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy because they saw the people uh, following this Jesus whom they had crucified. makes them look a little bad. And they also see all these miracles and the people are flocking. It's a threat to their authority. It's a threat to their power. It's a threat to their position. After all, that's why Caiaphas had said about Jesus, man, this guy is going to upset the apple cart with the Romans. You know, we need peace with the Romans so that we can keep our place. Their motives were more political and economic. And they're feeling the same way about these guys. Look, this keeps up. The Romans are going to notice, and we're going to have a problem. So they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. And he said, go, stand in the temple courts, tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they obediently entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. Well, you can imagine the scene when the next morning, the captain of the guard goes to get them out of jail, take them to the Sanhedrin, because right now, you boys are in deep trouble. We're about to just put the hammer down on you. So he goes to get them and realizes it's locked. All the guards are there. They're not there. He goes back to the Sanhedrin and scratching his head, he says, Man, nobody knows what happened here, but these guys are gone. Well, while he's talking to them, somebody says, well, actually, they're right over there. They're back in the temple. You go, you're kidding. What's wrong with these guys? Are these guys idiots? And so he goes to get them out of the temple where they're still preaching. But now watch the irony in this. But when he gets there, it says they didn't take them by force because he was afraid all the people would stone them. Notice how it's turned around. He's going to go punish them, and when he gets there, it's like, would you guys mind coming with us? Uh, and you guys put those stones down, right? So you see how things have turned. And so they say, sure, be happy to talk to the Sanhedrin. Wonder if they'd like to hear another sermon. And so 
they go with him back to the Sanhedrin. Having brought the apostles back, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. He said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles, by the way, notice, Peter and the apostles understand, this wasn't really Pontius Pilate's doing. He gave the order, and he's complicit, but they understand who's really driving this. They said, you intend to make us guilty of his blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree, crucifying, which was a curse. He said, God exalted him, though, to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. Notice this eyewitness thing keeps coming up. He said, we saw it, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. They said, we're going to kill these guys, we're going to do it. Well, they don't have the authority before the Romans, but they're so angry, they thought, we'll kill them, we'll take our chances with the Romans. Then a lone voice pops up. Passage goes on to say that a guy named Gamaliel speaks up. He's a Pharisee, and he stands up, and he says, put these guys outside, I want to talk to you for a minute. Now, Gamaliel doesn't think Jesus is the Messiah, <clears throat> but... He's definitely a more devout, more spiritual guy. He doesn't have any problem with the resurrection part. In fact, he kind of likes seeing the Sadducees so revved up about it. But he said, listen, he said, we have seen people who claim to be the Messiah before, and it never turned into anything. He said, so I'll tell you this. He said, if this is from God, you do not want to be fighting it because it's going to succeed. But if it's not from God, and he doesn't think that it is, he said, it'll pretty much take care of itself and it won't, won't succeed. So I would urge you to do nothing. Let it run its course. Well, believe it or not, they were persuaded by that. This Gamaliel, by the way, is a very famous rabbi, very famous in Jewish history. His grandfather's name was Hillel. If you've been on college campuses, you'll sometimes see a Jewish Hillel center, a place for Jewish students to go, kind of a youth area. Hillel was very famous. Uh, he had an entire school of religious thinking that's in the Mishnah and the Talmud. This is his grandson, very much revered. For 25 years, from about 25 AD to about 50 AD, and we're right in the middle of that period here, very influential. The people respected him. Even the Sadducees listened to what he had to say because he was considered to be very wise. But Gamaliel, by the way, has a few disciples at this time, and Paul, whom we will meet soon, is one of his disciples at this time. Paul's a little more of a hothead than his teacher because Gamaliel says, let's just see what happens. Relax a little bit. If they're going to make an uprising, the Romans will destroy them. And if this really is from God, which I doubt, you do not want to be on the wrong side of that. So the scripture says that they, his speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. Now, to us, oh, they only got flogged. Think about a whip, 39 lashes on your back. It's humiliating. I mean, it's intended to be public humiliation. They didn't do it there. They dragged them out in public and flogged them and said, these guys are bad guys. It's, it's shame. It's a shame. You know, and so they hurt. I mean, obviously, they got flogged. It's like, okay, let that be a lesson. You're lucky to escape with your life. So they flogged them, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And then what did they do? Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Unbelievable story. This is, what, this is how the early church reacted to this kind of persecution. The apostles completely fearless in this case. They understand that they could die. They're just willing to die. For what? For an eyewitness testimony. In other words, I need to tell you what I've been told to tell you. I'm here to give you a message, and whatever those guys say, I'm going to tell you this message, and I'm going to confirm it with this power that I have no idea. This is the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ doing these signs. Now, let me tell you about Jesus. I don't know about you, but 
for me, it would be, man, how many warnings do you need? It's like, well, maybe we ought to just go on the internet, you know, not do this thing in the temple. You know, maybe we ought to get a little TV show and hide out somewhere. But no, they're just kind of boldly doing it. And I just want to draw one attention to this. You're going to see a lot of persecution from here on. Why not? I mean, if these guys aren't even paying attention to them, it's going to provoke even more persecution, and you'll see in the coming lessons. But here's a question that I would have. What kind of faith does it take to react like this when you're threatened? Also, stop and think about what's happening here because I think there's some really interesting parallels. One of my questions on social media this week was this. How can people who are doing nothing but good be persecuted or punished because the authorities don't like what they're saying? Isn't that it? That's what's happening here. You don't, you're not shocked by that in this story because you think, well, they probably didn't have freedom of speech. They probably didn't have religious freedom. Well, that's true, they didn't. And yet you still see this happening, even in our culture today. Stop and think about it. What are Christians doing that's really so bad? What were they doing that's bad? Oh, we're healing cripples. Gosh, sorry about that. You know, we're saying that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and if you don't agree, okay, we won't make you come to church. In other words, they're doing nothing but good, but what's happening? You see this really vicious reaction because they don't like what they're saying. And I want to encourage you a little bit because you see that in our world today in many cases. You say, what is it? What's wrong with Christians? I mean, are they killing people? Are they robbing and stealing? No. Oh, oh they've got free clinics. Oh, that's the problem. They're helping people. Oh, that's the problem. Oh, they're good citizens. Because authorities react in violent disagreement to the name of Jesus Christ. That's true today, and it was true then. And I think there's some good lessons for us. Then how then do we react? And the only point I'd make is they're not intimidated. In fact, they're not only not intimidated, they actually go, I mean, think about it. You just got flogged, you just got humiliated, and you're high-fiving each other going, yes, we get to suffer a little bit like Jesus. You guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? Uh, he was a pastor, World War II, Nazi Germany, ends up being imprisoned, ends up being killed. He wrote some great things, particularly in prison, and he wrote this. He said, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. It is not surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In other words, this idea of resistance by authorities is a natural thing. I know it's hard to explain. You think, really, what is, why this vicious reaction? They're just healing people, and they're preaching something that the authorities don't agree with, but who's that harming? And yet you see this violent reaction. You see that today, too, and I just want you to understand, that's not because you're doing anything wrong. In fact, if we weren't seeing some kind of reaction in the world, you'd kind of have to wonder if we were actually preaching Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So I think this story is important to us, and it's going to be interesting as you see how God is actually going to use this persecution, going to turn it around. Remember the irony? He turned the authority, the captain of the guard is going to go seize these guys and punish them, and he gets there and he goes, whoa, these guys are going to stone us. Would you please come with us? You notice how power gets turned upside down. In a persecution, who has power? The government. The authorities, they're the ones with power. They said, we're going to kill you. We're going to flog you. And they do. They flog them. But watch what God does with this. He's going to turn this upside down. You're going to find out who really is powerful here. Despite this happening, the church explodes. You're going, well, wait a minute. We can't put that in our flyers. Hey, come join us. You might get flogged. But the church is exploding. Why? If you see this happening... You have no question that these people believe that this is true. There's something about this Jesus if people will do this. Does that make sense? They're going to think the same thing about you and me. When we help people that nobody else wants to help, when we're kind to people, gracious to people, we're making a testimony. When authorities react in a hostile way towards Christians for doing good, for speaking what we believe is truth, that's a good thing. God uses that in powerful ways. So I want you to be encouraged by this story when you read... They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer a little bit for Jesus. What a powerful attitude. Make sense? Let's see if we have any questions before I move on to the second thing, but I actually want you to be encouraged by this, and I also want you to see the obvious parallels then and now. 
You talk about apostles and disciples. Are the words the same? Are the people the same? That's a good question. Let's talk about the difference between the apostles and the disciples. The disciple, they're just words. The word disciple is a Greek word that means a learner, a follower. It's someone who is learning to be like their rabbi, like their teacher. So disciples were people you bring on. We use it today, you might call them an apprentice or uh, an intern. I mean, we use different words, but fine, you're here to learn. You're here to follow me, watch what I do. I'm here to teach you how to, to do something. Well, in this case, a disciple is, I want to teach you how to be like I am and preach what I preach. So disciple means a learner. Jesus had a lot of disciples. He had 12 in particular that he chose to specifically pour into. The word apostle in Greek means someone who is sent. Think about an ambassador. That word, this by the way, these aren't religious words. These words are used in secular Greek literature all the time. We think of them in a religious way, but they're not religious words. You could be a disciple of Aristotle. Didn't have anything to do with God, but you were learning philosophy. You could be an apostle from the city of Athens. You could be an ambassador to go negotiate a treaty or go send a message somewhere. So an apostle is someone who's sent, like an ambassador. So afterwards, these 12 disciples, the 11, right, not Judas, these 11 were now start to be called apostles because they're not following Jesus learning anymore. They graduated. They now have the Great Commission. What's, what's their ambassadorship? Go into all the world, make disciples, make learners of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's the Great Commission. Now they're sent. They're apostles. So it's really a, a terminology of what their job is. Their job was for three years to go to school with Jesus. Now their job is get out there and go testify, go tell the story. So that's the difference. You'll see the word apostle used of other people besides the 11 plus Paul. We'll talk about him when he gets here in our story. But you'll you see that word applied to other people. But when we talk about it, we sometimes mean those special 12 that were the closest to Jesus that received a commission. The truth is, uh, and I don't want you to start putting this on your business card, we're all apostles. I mean, we are disciples in that we're learning, but we're at the same time, we're apostles in the sense that we, we have that same mission. We've been commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. So we too are apostles. I tried to get the church to make that my title, but Crossings doesn't use it. I, apostle, Terry, it just sounded good to me. So that's the difference between disciples and apostles. It's just a mission. It's a title for what you do. We use it often to refer to these specific group of people. Good question. Okay. It seems obvious to us that the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees knew that Jesus had returned from the dead, yet they were opposed to his teaching. So how do we apply that today? Yeah, I would, I would actually suggest, and then because I haven't really talked about this, the Sadducees likely did not think Jesus was raised from the dead. They don't know what happened, but it is not possible in their mindset because people don't get raised from the dead. When you die, your soul dies. That's what they believe. So they didn't admit that possibility. They're like, I cannot explain it. Maybe these guys made it up. Maybe they stole the body. Remember the Jews started the rumor, oh, the apostles stole the body. Now they're saying he's raised from the dead. Here's the problem. You don't, you don't do this for a lie. And that's part of why they're a little getting uneasy. It's like, okay, if they stole his body and lied, you don't usually get flogged for that. You know, you're not usually willing to die for something you know is not true. So they're getting uneasy, but they don't agree. Some of the Pharisees did. Remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3 and says, Teacher, we know that you're from God because nobody can do this if you're not. And he said, you must, Jesus said, you must be born again. And speaks to him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus comes to get Jesus' body and buries him. He's a believer in Jesus. I mean, he's a little afraid, the scripture says, to just go into the Sanhedrin and say, hey, I think this guy's right. Well, they're going to stone him too. So he was afraid, but there are some of the Pharisees that do apparently believe because they believe resurrection's real, and they think, hey, I kind of think this guy's testimony is right. These eyewitnesses are right. So some of them thought that and, and became believers. Sadducees, not, not so likely. Now, some of the priests did. You'll see in the middle of it, even some of the priests begin to believe this eyewitness testimony and this power, and they go, I think this is true. The rulers had too much at stake. 
and, and they, they do appear to be more interested in oppressing it. Sin tends to blind us. This is true for everybody, but sin tends to blind us to the truth. It gets in the way of us seeing God clearly, and you see that happening. You'll see it all through the book of Acts. Good question. Well, remember, take an encouraging word from persecution. We'll see more of it, and I want you to watch how God uses it. Right now, he uses it in a way to be a testimony. People go, you just got flogged, you got in trouble, the authorities threatened to kill you, and you want to do what? You're going to preach again? i got to listen to what these guys have to say. You see how powerful that is? Who's got the power now? The word of God is powerful. Well, in between there, there's this story about this couple and it's one of the most difficult stories in the Bible, so I'm just going to tell you the story, and I'm going to try and draw out why is this here? I mean, why do you put something that so puzzles us in this story? So let's go to the middle of the story, and here's something that's just inserted. After they'd been arrested, the story picks up, and it says, by the way, all the believers were one in heart and mind. They were very unified around the truth of this message. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. See how central this was? What were they preaching? If you want to know what were they preaching? They were preaching Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and that means you can repent and be forgiven of your sins. That's the gospel. They basically said, I've got some good news about what God did for sinners through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what they're preaching. Powerful message. So they continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord, the Master, the one who needs to be obeyed, the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them from, because from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. They didn't sell everything all at once, but as need arose, they were perfectly willing to sell a house or a field and say, here, it looks like we've got needs, you can have this. And so they brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to people as they had need. Now Joseph, he was a Levite of the priestly class. He was from Cyprus. He didn't live in Jerusalem. Whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and gave it to the apostles. I want you to notice a contrast that's being set up here. The, the story about Ananias and Sapphira, as difficult as it is, is here for a purpose. It said this is what the community of believers was like. They no longer, material possessions were no longer their number one concern. In fact, they were merely things to be used to further the kingdom of God. Taking care of other people, you'll see them later use that money to send out missionaries. So in other words, their possessions became tools to, for God's disposal. And by the way, let me introduce you to Barnabas because he's going to become important in a little bit in the story. He said he's a great example. He sold a field and just said, here, here's the money, use it for whoever needs it. The very next verse is going to show you a contrast. So you get a picture of this group of believers. You get an example of Barnabas. Now I'm going to show you an example of a threat to this community. Very next verse. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. This story is going to tell you to show you, there's a lesson here, and I'm going to show us a contrast also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? He said, now, Ananias, didn't this field belong to you before it was sold? Nobody told you you needed to sell it. And after it was sold... Wasn't the money your money? Nobody told you what to do with it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down dead. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are here, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
That's a tough one, isn't it? I want you to see, first of all, the setting before we dive into it, because I expect you'll have a couple questions about this, because it, it challenges us on a couple of levels in our, in our way of thinking. But first, you saw a description of the community. This is here for a reason. And I love it that the Bible doesn't paint any, it doesn't sugarcoat anything. There's nothing in here that says, oh, and by the way, they were really bad people. Or, oh, and by the way, you don't know the whole story. No, nah, it's just like, this is what happened. It says, here's this community of believers, and here's this purity and this unity in mind, and the way they thought about material possessions. Here's an example of Barnabas, and now here's an example of Ananias and Sapphira. One of the things I think that challenges us about this is, why weren't they given a chance to repent? Was that really so bad that they literally had to be struck dead? Not by Peter, they died. You get the impression, by the way. Uh, we're not gonna mince words with you. The, the text leaves us with the impression that God killed them. Not that they just had a, oh, probably just had a heart attack. You know, Ananias, he'd been on blood pressure medicine for a long time. No, the scripture's not trying to sugarcoat this. Peter didn't kill them. Nobody there took a sword by heaven's sake and killed them. But they died, and you get the impression that God executed a judgment on them, and they died. So you think to yourself, oh, man, doesn't that seem just a little bit harsh? I mean, really, they just kind of kept back part of the money, and they just weren't entirely truthful. Hey, aren't we all sinners? You know, don't we all sin? Who am I to condemn, right? Don't judge me. But that's not the way the Scripture, that's not the way this plays out in the Scripture, is it? And I think it behooves us to ask the question, that's in here for a reason. In fact, you don't put that in there unless you have a point to make because that is not very flattering to, you know, to what's going on here. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what is the point of this? Why is this here? First of all, you have a community of believers. You have unity of mind and spirit. There's no compulsion. By the way, I want to make sure you understand. They, they are not condemned because they kept back part of the money. In fact, they didn't have to sell the field at all. Peter says, it was your field, and when you sold it, it was your money. In other words, the problem is not that they kept some of the money. That's not the issue here. The issue is they wanted it to look like they had done the same thing as Barnabas, for example. They wanted to be thought of as well, but they were deceiving people, and they were trying to deceive God. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? What's happening here? Peter says, Satan has so filled your heart. Satan has tempted you and you have believed him that you should keep this money and you can look like you're holy and be greedy at the same time. What you see here in the scripture is you've got this community of believers, you've got this unity, and Satan says, not only is there persecution from outside with the Jewish authorities, who else is trying to break this thing up? Jewish authorities want to stamp this thing out. So does Satan. But Satan's smart enough to know, if I start killing these guys, they're just going to keep preaching. I'll tell you what I'll do. You see this unity? I'll just get in the middle of this thing, and I'll just mess up their unity. I'll just tell a bunch of them that, you know, this whole selling everything you have, you better hedge your bets a little bit. I mean, who knows what the stock market's going to do. You can just tell everybody you get. You can look like a good Christian, but you can still be greedy inside. You better, that's the smart play here. That's what Satan did. And if he'd gotten away with it, what happens? You begin to have a community of people who have a cancer growing in it. You've got deceit. You've got people that look like good Christians, but they're not. They're harboring anger, hate, resentment, greed. In this case, greed. Satan usually picks the easiest way to tempt us, isn't it? Greed's a good one. And he says, I can get a foothold with them, and I can get in the middle of this, and I'll break the division. I mean, I'll break the unity of this community. The Holy Spirit is, the story so far has been all about what the Spirit of God is doing. This Holy Spirit, this is really interesting. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is not just responsible for growing the church, meaning spreading the word and convicting people and bringing more and more believers into the church. The Holy Spirit is also responsible for protecting the church, for the purity of the church. This is interesting that God is, does not just want a lot of people in his church. He isn't saying, okay, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira, they're not there yet, you know, bless their little sinner hearts, you know, come on in and be part of the unity. 
is not about how many people are there. It's about what kind of community the scripture is building. And that's true for us too. And it's a good warning for us. There needs to be a little awe, even a little fear. By the way, that word fear, where we get our word phobia, is translated earlier in Acts, I should have shown you. When they did the miracle, it says, and all the people were in awe. That's this word. This word has a sense of fear, like, whoa, that's serious. I'm dealing with an authority here. This is God, you know? And it also has the sense of awe, as in wonder, as in, wow, this is so far above me. It's the same word. But it's interesting here that you see that there's a great fear, a great awe. People go, oh, okay, wait a minute, this is serious. This, this is really God doing this. But basically, God isn't interested in just having a big church. God's interested in having this pure church, this community. And to be of one heart and one mind means that we are in the business of putting off sin in our lives. This is a very graphic example of how seriously God takes sin, not on a personal level, I mean, it is true that God takes sin as an important thing. Sin isn't just a personal thing. It threatens the community. Does that make sense? This sin is dealt with in this way. It's not always dealt with this in this way in the church or in, even in the book of Acts, but there's a point being made here. And that is sin isn't just between me and God. It's like, hey, you mind your own business. You got your sin, I got my sin. God says, no. I'm building a community of believers of one heart and one mind, and your sin and my sin affects all of us. Does that make sense? Powerful message. You have persecution trying to, to stamp this out and break this community from outside, and you have Satan trying to break this community from inside. That's still true today. That's still what we are doing with each other, is trying to build that unity, that one heart and that one mind, that singleness of purpose. That makes sense? Hard story. It's one of those when on first glance you read it and you go, wow, overreaction. You know, we're all sinners. And God's saying, not an overreaction. Let me make this clear. Read my lips. I called you to repentance. I died on a cross for you. I did not die on a cross for you to look like a good Christian and harbor greed in your heart. He said, don't think you can mock God. He says, he says, Satan has filled your heart to think you could lie to the Holy Spirit. That's why the scripture talks about sin. I know you're sitting there quaking in your boots going, boy, I don't know about Terry, but I'm a little worried at this point. Good. So were they. Great fear seized all the people. And by the way, and the church explodes. It explodes. Why? This is really authentic. I want you to actually be encouraged by this. You're like, really? How am I getting there? Follow me. Here's how you get encouraged by that. Is The point is... Until we take our sin seriously, we will not put it off, and it will destroy us. You understand what I'm saying? If we don't take our sin seriously, it will destroy us, and until it gets our attention, we will not turn away. We will try to hold on to. Satan whispered in my ear, you can eat that apple. You can keep that money. You can keep doing this. He is going to destroy us. And so the, one of the great things about this is I read this and I go, God takes sin very seriously. And you know what? It's not just about me. It affects you too. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. doesn't mean any of us are. What does the scripture say? How do we then deal with our sin? This story says you don't deal with it by hiding it. You don't deal with it by just lying to people about it. How do Christians deal with their sin? You're going to read in the rest of the New Testament, it says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. If Ananias or Sapphira, let's take Sapphira. Ananias is dead. She doesn't know it. She comes in. Peter says, how much did you sell it for? She goes, I got, to, I got to be honest with you, Peter. We lied to you. We got twice that much for it. And Peter said, do you think the same thing happens? No. The blood of Jesus Christ covers our sins but not sins that we harbor. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the encouraging thing is you and I needed a little wake up call and say, hey, I want to take my sin seriously. I want that out of my life. So I want you to be encouraged by this. I want a little fear to seize us and say, I'm you know, you dance around the fire long enough, you will get burned. And the point is, I need to get rid of that fire. I need to get rid of that out of my life. Lord, I'm going to, let's just open the doors. I'm not lying to you. Here it is. Now, remove this from my life. And God is faithful to do that. Question?
So is this the one unforgivable sin that Scripture talks about? Good question. Some commentators think so. I do not. I do not think that this is the one unforgivable sin. It's, it's said the blasphemy of, of the Holy Spirit or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is lying to the Holy Spirit. This is not good. Don't misunderstand me. I just textually don't find any compelling reason to think this is the unforgivable sin, so this is what happened. I actually think you and I do have done this. Well, I can't speak for you. I have. And there's opportunity for repentance and gratitude that, Lord, I probably deserve death too. Thank you that I can come clean with you and that you will clean me up and that you, you see what I'm saying? This is here for me to, to take a lesson. I don't read it that way, but I understand there are some commentators that do. Good, good question. All right, it's tough to end on this story. I mean, this wouldn't have been my choice of lessons to end with, but, you know, I kind of like it too. It's going to let the Scripture be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say. So I want you to be encouraged on two fronts. Number one, persecution. God is bigger than your persecutors. I know today we feel like we're a little under attack, even in our country. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Are, are, we're being pressed in a lot of ways, not quite this violently, but, but quite a bit. I want you to take heart that and be bold to speak the truth in love and go do what God has called us to do because in the end, he is stronger than those who think they have strength. And you'll see that story play out. And the book of Acts is a great testimony to us to how to live in a culture that isn't as friendly to us as we would like. There certainly isn't. And we're going to learn some good lessons. And then secondly, if you remember nothing else from Ananias and Sapphira, remember this. God takes your sin very seriously, so seriously that he loves you enough to do this to get your attention. Think about that. He loves you enough to say, I will not let you lie. I will not let you play with fire. I care too much about you. You, you need to come clean with me. You need to confess this. This is a powerful story about how seriously God takes sin, and he does that because he knows it will destroy us. So, last week, I'm going to give you the same assignment. Last week, your, your assignment was to relax. Do you remember what the church was doing? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the word, be in the word. They devoted themselves to fellowship, come together, enjoy each other's company, be of one mind and one heart, be a unified body of people devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, worship. I think that had to do with their worship services, and to prayer. You know what? Quit trying to measure up. Quit trying to act right. Do those things. Just do what the early church did. We'll devote ourselves to studying the word, to prayer, to coming together in fellowship and worshiping together. And let's say, Holy Spirit, do what you want. What would I add on to that this week? A great lesson from this. Do not be discouraged about what the world is doing the power is in the word of God, and it is going to overcome the world. What did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's just a matter of time. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I want you to be encouraged by that. And then secondly, instead of trying to look good like Ananias and Sapphira and measure up, let's just be honest with God and say, this sin is serious. Take it. Do with it. I surrender it to you. That makes sense? So Relax. Surrender. Quit trying so hard. Okay? If you're angry trying to get out of the parking lot, if you're angry trying to get out of the parking lot, just surrender that to God. All right? Good. Next time, trouble in the church. I know this is going to shock you, but people are people. And can you believe people start complaining? We don't like the worship music that you're choosing. We don't think you're treating us right. By the way, why, you know, why do some people get their Sunday school class over here and my Sunday school class is over there? Welcome to the ancient church. Welcome to the modern church. Interesting to see. I mean, this is totally unexpected how they deal with it in the early church. So I'll tell you about that next week. Thanks.